Hi, this is Ryan Hawk, and you're listening to the Nerd Byword. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We're going to get you in the festive spirit as we sit down with bric-a-brac author Ryan Hawk. Uh, but first, it's not a complete episode without nerd news. Dave, what's on tap for you? Well, as it turns out, Marvel's Avengers uh, didn't sell as well as expected, according to Square Enix. Uh, now, this is talking, obviously, about the uh, Avengers video game that was released a few months back. The Square Enix-produced Avengers game isn't doing so well, apparently, at least according to a recent report on Kotaku.com. So apparently, Square Enix held a briefing for investors in early November, uh, during which the company's president, Yosuke Matsuda, said the following, and I quote, The HD Games subsegment posted an operating loss as initial sales of Marvel's Avengers were lower than we had expected, and unable to completely offset the amortization of the game's development costs. One investor estimated the loss around $67 million. Now, this is the Avengers we're talking about here. Uh, It's a prime cinematic um, release that makes, you know, like a billion dollars or something. So how can this game not catch on? What in the world went wrong here? Obviously, I'm only speculating, but I'm starting to wonder if there is a ceiling for the games-as-service model. You know, when Avengers was initially announced, there was a fair amount of excitement, followed by, well, significantly less excitement when it was revealed that the game would have a strong online multiplayer focus with additional characters and missions and maps coming along later. I can tell you that, at least from my perspective, that was a pretty big turnoff. A single-player, story-focused Avengers game would have totally been my jam. Uh, But I've grown increasingly tired of the time sinks of online-only games. My last major brush with one of those games was Overwatch, which I enjoyed tremendously and sank a lot of time into, but which ultimately made me feel like I was caught in a never-ending cycle of rebalanced characters and pushy loot box purchases. It's, It's not... The, without a clear end game or or goal in sight, it becomes just uh, this cycle, a uh, never-ending cycle that you just have to break free from at some point. So, in short, you know maybe the amount of gamers willing to live, quote unquote, in these live service games for countless hours is actually more limited than the industry thinks. Considering that those gamers are sinking all of their time into a game as service already, like you know Overwatch, for example, or the the annual Call of Duty releases, it seems to me, at least, like it will become increasingly difficult to persuade gamers to give these games as service a shot. Now, the thing is that at the very least, this Avengers game has somewhat of a single player uh, story campaign, although rather brief. And if they would have maybe flipped the focus and focus more on the single player component and having a longer campaign and then adding the multiplayer as, you know, this nice side bonus, they might have had a better shot at, at 
you know, at the very least recouping their development costs, which they apparently did not do here. Chris, what are your thoughts? So um, this is really, really interesting story for me because I just purchased this game a couple of days ago um, when it was on sale for the Black Friday uh, special. Um, And in my experience, uh, I have been playing it for a couple of days now. I, like you, very rarely, if ever, want to play online multiplayer games. Almost never. Um, And I've been able to do a single player campaign. You can turn on matchmaking or off matchmaking. And I just turn mine off and I just, you know, stay in my bubble and and do my own thing. Um, The campaign so far has has been uh, quite enjoyable. Um, you know, this, this will make you happy, Dave, but, but Kamala Khan is just absolutely just a revelation in this. Now it, it's, um, a, a skosh different from what I've experienced her, uh, you know, in, as far as comics, she starts out, um, as that happy go lucky fan girl, but then she gets some gumption and it's a really interesting shift in her character, um, so, so it's, it's, it's I, I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, the, the move set is probably one of the most frustrating adjustments. Um, but once you get used to it, um, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm having a blast. Um, but Kamala is, is by far the best part of this game so far. Um, I'll, I also think a couple of things are in play here. Number one, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So, I mean, Companies and corporations are are you know losing money left and right. You've got AT and T and Warner and and Disney and ESPN and all these major corporations that you know were were thought to be infallible that are you know experiencing tremendous layoffs. You know we're in an economic crisis. We're in a public health crisis. So I mean, like you know, the ability to go and spend sixty to eighty dollars on a brand new video game is. It is just not, you know, reasonable or realistic at this point in time. Um, you know, also it's a bit of an awkward release with uh, the next gen consoles coming out in November, and and this game came shortly before, so that played into the awkwardness of it all. I would have probably, you know, it was delayed already. I probably would have delayed it and just released it with the next gen consoles. That that would have probably been a little bit more, you know, synced up. But just from my personal experience, I'm I'm really enjoying the game. And and um I did notice that there seemed to be scrambling with the the bonus content. I saw Kate Bishop uh Hawkeye, you know, it was announced the other day, so I'm excited to see that DLC coming out. Um but but I'm I'm having a great time. There was quite a bit of backlash um initially when the even the, the character designs were unveiled and a lot of people were like, Well this is this is dollar store Avengers because they didn't, you know, spring for the for the movie license and being able to use the the likeness of the actors from the MCU. Do you think that may have hurt the game in some respects as well? Um, It it was a bit jarring. Um, You know, even seeing Tony Stark on the screen and not hearing Robert Downey Jr.'s voice, that that's a bit of an adjustment, but um, you know, I've advocated, you know, alternate universes and, 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 uh, you know, timelines before. And so I just put myself in that mindset that like, this is just a different type of story. And, and I think, you know, as, as a longtime fan of these characters, 
um, and, and not so much a casual one. You know, like if your exposure to the Avengers is strictly through the MCU, you're probably going to be disappointed. But, you know, I've seen different iterations of them before. So um, it, it's a bit of an adjustment um, to see different characters, but um, I, I'm enjoying it again, like I said. Hmm, that's that's very interesting. Now, Chris, you are bringing some Spidey-related news this week. Why am I not surprised? What is going on in the world of Spider-Man, Chris? <laughs> well, there are rumblings that Alfred Molina is going to return as Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man 3. Um, you know, much has been made of, of this upcoming Tom Holland-led flick um, and, and some, you know, some rumors of a Spider-Verse type of scenario with Jamie Foxx being signed on to return as Electro, um, you know, from the amazing Spider-Man film universe, uh, you know, rumors that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield would be, you know, returning as well. And the latest, you know, development on that front is that Alfred Molina is in talks to return as Dr. Octopus. Um, so this came from a website called the GWW, um, which, you know, when, when you come at speculations like this, you're always, you know, um, you want, you want to check your sources and you want to be, you don't want to, you know, jump to conclusions, but you know, they've had some, some previous success with, um, with their, their sources before. So it's, it's something to, to take into, you know, consideration. Um, in, in a uh, 2014 interview, Alfred Molina spoke glowingly about his experience, uh, you know, re- with the film. Um, you know, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 and, and a lot of uh, Spider-Man fans is, is their favorite. Um, uh, speaking of that role, he said, quote, that was the most fun I think I've ever had on a movie of that kind, says Molina. Those big, big sort of features where you spend like six months hanging off a wire, you know. It was the first movie of that kind I'd ever been involved in. He continues, I had a wonderful time. I loved it. I mean, I'd go back and do it again in a heartbeat. So, so that's really exciting, you know, just to think about, you know, his willingness to return and, and, um, uh, you know, the GWW here I'm reading on this article, they, they previously were correct about the scroll appearance in the far from home and the surprise drop of the, the WandaVision trailer. So they've been, you know, two for two in that regard. So uh, again, this is, you know, taken as a grain of salt and, and, and I'll put some more, you know, uh, you know, gumption behind this when, when I see it, you know, officially confirmed, but it's, it's an exciting thing to think about. And, um, uh, you know, I'm I'm a bit um, on the opposite end when it comes to Spider-Man Two and the Raimi films. Uh, we've talked about this briefly before, but but Tobey Maguire um, and uh, and Kirsten Dunst, I think, were were serious miscasts. I, I think um, I think nostalgia can be a powerful drug sometimes, and and we think back to that time in our lives, and 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 we remember it, you know, better than what it was. Um, so I, I'm particularly not a fan of, of their portrayals in those roles. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, Molina was just magical and he still is. And he's easily the best part of that film for me. Dave, what do you think about all this? Yeah, actually, I find this incredibly exciting. Alfred Molina's Dr. Octopus may have been the best thing about Spider-Man 2, which at least at the time represented probably one of the best superhero movies at the, you know, of all time up to that point. So seeing him reprise the role would be extremely exciting. You know, it seems increasingly clear to me that this next MCU Spider-Man will be in some way a riff off of the idea of the Spider-Verse. 
I, I don't think that's that anybody can deny that that's what it's looking like at this point. The return of Jamie Foxx as Electro, the consistent rumors that former Spidey actors Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield have been in talks to appear. I mean, clearly something is up here. You know, on the one hand, that's exciting. I love alternate universe and, and alternate timeline stories. And if done well, they, they rank as some of my favorites oftentimes. It would also, I think, go a long way to unite the fandom of cinematic Spider-Man a little bit, considering the consistent arguing, particularly online, about which Spider-Man was better. Maybe we could even get some closure from Maguire and Garfield's versions of the characters. Both uh, series ended rather cliffhangery, uh, for lack of a better term. But you know what? Here I go again. On the other hand... It continues to disappoint me that we can't have a classic street-level Spider-Man movie from the MCU. To me, Tom Holland is the embodiment of Ultimate Peter Parker, one of my favorite versions of that character, yet for some reason Marvel insists on making everything global or cosmic for Spidey, which is really not his sweet spot. The best Spidey stories, to me at least, are the ones focused on New York, on crime fighting, and on the deeply personal stakes Peter has in what is happening at any given time in the city. So I'm there for this movie. I'm excited about it. I'll be in line at the theater if this whole COVID mess ever goes away. Uh, and I'll be very excited to, to see Alfred Molina as Dr. Octopus again. He, he His performance was, was a revelation at the time. But I don't know. I feel like there may be a better movie and a less fan service take on Spider-Man. Maybe I'm wrong, but th- that's kind of how I'm feeling at this point. Yeah, I can definitely, uh, you know, empathize with that. I, I think, I think the world of Tom Holland, um, uh, and I would totally agree that that's Ultimate Spider-Man. And and the thing that's kind of interesting is thinking back to how they portrayed, you know, Doc Ock's um, origin story in Spider-Man Two. That kind of feels like the ultimate Doc Ock uh, as well. So that would be an interesting tie-in. But you know, and 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 I've talked about this before. I was. I was upset at first with the the Sony and Marvel split, um, and I you know I was raging you know pretty hard. But um, w- I I also kind of came to this resolution that maybe it's for the best that they would taper back over to you know solo Spidey stories because I I'm right there with you. The best uh, Spider Man stories are street level stuff. Um, that's why if you take out the the heavy handedness of, of Tony's inclusion in Homecoming, it's one of my favorite Spider-Man films because it, it's Peter, uh, you know, doing his best and, and against all the naysayers. And he's taking on the big bad guy, even when he's overmatched, you know, and, and it's so enjoyable uh, to me, um, you know, and the same thing for, you know, uh, Far From Home. If you take out the, the heavy handedness of the MCU um it's it's a great great spider-man story um so that gave me hope going forward to the future and and other than you know just having all these fun things um to to look forward to to a potential spider-verse movie i'm also looking forward to a time when we can just have tom holland being the centerpiece of the film and and not having to have this overarching 
you know, masculine role model, you know, it was Tony Stark and then it was Nick Fury. And then, you know, it's going to be Dr. Strange. It looks like in this film. So hopefully we could just have Tom doing his thing because he is magnetic on screen. He's one of the best things, um, you know, about the, the movies that he's in, even when, you know, like infinity war and Endgame. he's so doggone enjoyable in those movies that I, I want to see him featured. I, yeah, I totally agree with that assessment. I would just like a, a Spider-Man movie focused squarely on the Spider-Man we have, street level in New York. Just give us a good, you know, personal, high stakes Peter Parker story. I'd be for, I'd be all over that in a heartbeat. I, I will say this, and I, and I don't think that they would misfire on this because it would be a huge missed opportunity with the popularity of Miles Morales coming out of into the Spider-Verse. Um, and now his own game on the PlayStation five, they better have miles in this movie. If they are doing a spider verse thing, they better have miles because it would be a huge misstep if they don't. Yes, totally. I agree with that. And they already laid the groundwork with, with Donald Glover as uncle Aaron. So it's, it's there. It's begging, it's begging to happen. All right, that wraps up our nerd news segment. When we come back from our first break, we're going to sit down with author Ryan Hawk and talk Christmas time with Brick or Brack. Stick around. Welcome back, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We are here with uh, writer Ryan Hawk. Uh, we're here to talk about Brick or Brack issue number two. Um, Ryan, thanks so much for joining the show today. Yes, and thank you guys for having me. Thank you so much. We always like to start an interview with our guest's origin story. Our listeners can probably start to guess our first question of each interview at this point. Um, what was your first exposure to the nerd world and what set you on the path toward becoming a writer of comic books? Um, yeah, so I think my first exposure to the nerd world um, was, I, I think in comic books at least, I was really interested in the Batman animated series um, when it, when I was a kid, it aired on, I think boomerang or something. So it wasn't like I was born in the late nineties. So it wasn't, I wasn't there for it, but uh, I definitely saw those. And then my interest in comic books kind of grew um, until I actually started buying them um, with, you know, I, I think the first thing I got was like the killing joke, which is, um, you know, it's kind of a classic at this point. I think someone just recommended it to me. And then what really, I think the comic that really stuck with me was, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sales, um, The Long Halloween. Like I just saw, I remember reading that and that was kind of the thing that really kind of hooked me. And then I didn't really stop from there. And luckily around that time, the New 52 era was happening. So there were, I mean, the quality of the books is was questionable. I think a lot of people still debate that. But the thing that's not debatable is that it, it was a good jumping on point for a young readers like I was. And so I was uh, kind of jumped on there and I didn't stop uh, reading comic books ever since. It, it's interesting that you mentioned Jeff Lowe by name. We have a complicated relationship with him, uh, especially after Ultimatum. Yeah, that's a fact. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ultimatum is, um, well, I mean, at least people look at it for the amazing art, you know? Yeah, for sure. So besides, you know, being exposed to Batman the Animated Series and, and some of Jeff Loeb's writing, who would you say are your biggest influences as a writer yourself now? Um, so I, I do a lot of kind of writing. I don't just write comic books. I do prose. I do scripts. I make my own movies. I do a lot of different stuff like that. But I think, um, in terms of comic books, my main inspiration and the book that really inspired me the most to really want to write them was 
Batman and Robin by Grant Morrison. I think that book just kind of unlocked this, like how fun writing could be and how fun um, telling stories could be and the collaborative medium um, could be of comic books. I mean, I'm sure there's a million examples of books that are like that, but Batman and Robin, it was just so fun. Um, and the Frank quietly, when he's, when uh, Frank quietly started or, um, I, you know, Cameron Stewart, uh, did the art for a while and, uh, just, uh, so many great stories, uh, with Damian Wayne and, uh, Dick Grayson. And I kind of just fell in love with comic books at that point. And I knew that, uh, I love the Grant Morrison's writing cause I, I love all of his stories. I mean, the filth is a really, really tough book to get through, but it's amazing. And final crisis. I know people have a lot of problems with it, but I think it's, still amazing i think it's there's still a lot of good stuff there but even his most mundane work is still he's always trying to try new things he's always trying to uh uh, subvert your expectations i think grant morrison is my favorite comic book writer and he's influenced me the most to take uh chances yeah you you'll find mad love uh from my corner of the pod uh for grant morrison's work particularly on uh on justice league his jla was absolutely ridiculously fantastic and and his I'm a huge mutant fan and his new X Men is one of the best things I've ever read so so major love for Grant mm-hmm. yeah it was his Batman for me I love Batman R I P the concept of having Batman have a backup like it's totally a Batman thing but no one's ever really thought of that having a backup Batman inside of his brain to kind of um, you know uh, if he if he was if his mind was ever um, attacked. Uh, that he would have this backup personality or there's just so many great stories in his Batman run. And I just think, um, again, he's never afraid to kind of try something new that uh, is risky to a lot of people. When he killed Bruce Wayne, supposedly, which he didn't really, um, people were really outraged. Uh, And, you know, he's done so many different questionable things, even I think killing Damian Wayne at one point. And uh, I think that was going to be the end of his Batman run, but they brought him back um, after Grant Morrison left Batman um, Inc. Batman Incorporated. So it's just he always does these things that are very um, they subvert expectations, but in a good way. Now, speaking of trying uh, a bunch of different things, you've also scribed uh, an anthology of web comics. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I really love short comic books, and I think again that kind of the, the Grant Morrison influence um, is kind of there too, because I always try to think about uh, stories that might be really exciting to tell in a comic book format that are, you know, five pages or three pages or four pages. And I think that's a a sweet spot. Uh, And those are some of the hardest comic books to write, but that are really short, but they're also the most gratifying. And so I just, um, since 2018, um, you know, every week or so, I'll try to write a script that's about that long and then go on ArtStation or something and try to find an artist to collaborate on it. And um, that's what I've been doing for the past couple of years. And we've accumulated so many stories. We have about like 25 stories now. Um, So we're going to, we're going to be launching a second volume of this anthology series on Kickstarter next year. But um, it's just, it's a really fun thing to do because a lot of these people on ArtStation, they're just, um, they've never done comic book work. So they kind of on the side are just collaborating with me or, um, or maybe they're veterans in comic books, but they just want to do something for fun or, Um, the whole idea is just to have a fun collaboration, you know, that's really the whole concept. Um, and just to have fun, you know, with these really short stories, that's, that's the, that's the, there's not a deadline or anything with them. It's just a, a a blast and I'd collaborate with anyone, you know, and I think that's one of the fun things too, is there's no pressure. And that's how the anthology kind of came about is, you know, just asking people knocking on doors and asking if they would collaborate. 
Now, um, bric-a-brac is a really unique concept for a book. Where did all that stem from? Yes, uh, bric-a-brac. Uh, well, I've always been obsessed with Christmas. Um, I, don't, I think anyone who knows me would know that because uh, I just really love the, the imagery, the meaning. Christmas is a time that has a lot of meaning, you know, like layers of meaning. Even if you're not a religious person, you can find meaning in the simple fact that there's more sunlight during Christmas time. You know, we go from a really dark time uh, when there's hardly any sun to a time when there's a lot of sun. So there's even at the simplest, um, simplest, uh, uh, most base level um, form, Christmas is still meaningful to people, even people who are atheists. That mean that there's, it's still meaningful. And um, obviously with you adding religion and, uh, you know, being with family, there's layers of meaning. But anyway, I've always thought it was a ma magical, uh, important time. And I've always wanted to tell a story around that time. And um, basically the Rankin-Bass movies. So I'm talking about Rudolph, uh, you know, um, The Year Without a Santa Claus or Santa Claus is Coming to Town or the, the list goes on. There's so many of them that are kind of Christmas themed. Those movies were a huge inspiration for the tone the imagery, the characters, the kind of universe that I was creating with this book. So I would say those were the main inspiration. And then there's some other peripheral Christmas movies I think are really great too with some of the themes. But that's kind of, I wanted to make a amalgam of all these Christmas universes. Like what would it look like? Um, you know, we only get to see really the North Pole in all these Christmas movies. But what does the other part of that planet look like? If You know, I, it was the idea to kind of fully realize a fantasy Christmas world. And so, um, and kind of honestly to throw anything in there. So there's dragons, obviously you guys, I think I gave you guys the issue. So you kind of read it. Uh, there's dragons, there's, you know, um, strange, abominable creatures. Um, there's um, elves and fairies and all these kinds of things. And there's really no explanation as to how they got there. But the idea is just, it's an amalgam of a fantasy world that I've never seen in a Christmas story. Yeah, so we did get uh, a copy of issue one, and and it was, um, you know, really an interesting read and and something very very different. Um, but one thing that that really stood out to me is I'm curious, do you have a personal vendetta against Tchaikovsky and, and or the Nutcracker? Um, no, I don't have a personal a vendetta against him. No, not at all. I love his music, and actually, I was just <laughs> listening to it um just now. I mean, I love the Nutcracker. I think it's. Amazing. The idea with the Nutcrackers was that you usually see the Nutcrackers as heroes. And again, it's kind of subverting the idea of changing that and being like, well, actually, let's make the Nutcrackers the bad guys um, and kind of see, you know, see what that's like and how that could possibly work. Because I think that, you know, um, it's just the Nutcracker, they're so visually awesome to look at. They're so cool. And their origin is so cool. Um, and the, the idea that, uh, I mean, I think that they're just such a visually awesome character. It would be very, I mean, they, they, they fit a perfect villain. They fit a hero, but it would be kind of more fun to see how they would look like as a villain. So that's kind of how that idea came about. Actually, in the first couple of drafts, they were the heroes. And um, I just didn't feel right. So um, no personal vendetta. Just, I really, really enjoy uh, the imagery of the Nutcracker. I think it's so... Um, classically Christmas. It's hard to explain. Now, there are some deeply symbolic metaphors present in Brick-a-Brack. What central message are you hoping to communicate to your readers with the story? For sure. Um, a central message is, I mean, um, like I was talking about the layers of meaning, um, there are so many, um, even if you take out religious uh, context. Um, but uh, 
of, of Christmas, I mean. But in this book specifically, the main idea is kind of having a kid, um, a young kid. So, you know, uh, presumably um, maybe you get celebrated Christmas as well. Um, and you kind of, when you're a young kid, you believe in Santa Claus, you believe in all these fantastical things that happen on Christmas Eve night. And then the reality hits and you kind of are forced to reconcile with the fact that Santa isn't real in the way that you thought he was. I still think Santa's real, but he's actually more real than maybe someone who breaks into your house and gives you, because he, he, the idea is really powerful, but it's, you know, obviously when you grow up, um, he's not real in the way you wanted him to be. And so um, basically when that happens, you have to change your, your idea of Christmas kind of alters. I think it's a really important moment when you find out Santa Claus isn't real, quote unquote. And so um, basically that's Garrett's journey. It, it's kind of a metaphor for Garrett's journey. Obviously on a planet Christmas, Father Christmas is real. That's indisputable. But the, the difficulty with Garrett is that he's forced to reconcile with the fact that planet Christmas is at war. The, the planet he thought was all beautiful and sublime and he was about to go into because as, as we established in the first couple of pages, he's about to be 10 years old and they're going to, you know, let him go out and explore the world now. He's, he's um, old enough to. That's his right. Uh, and the fairies will let him. But now he's just found out that this world is totally corrupt now. Um, it's not what he thought it was. And so it's kind of a metaphor there. Um, it's going from the innocent into the, um, you know, now you're kind of scarred with this idea that all the things you held dear were so important to you. And so, um, you know, Garrett kind of goes through this world and uh, sees all the different characters, interacts with them. There's, all, there's a lot of great characters, like a lot of good people with good hearts. But there's also people who he encounters who aren't nice. Not only in the Nutcrackers, but there's people who hate Christmas. There's people who... Um, are ultra religious and like good King Wenceslas, who um, you know is very strict and uh, he you know imprisons people who celebrate Christmas. And there's all this kinds of stuff who he he meets um, along his journey. And so the idea <laughs> to put a long explanation short is from going from innocence to kind of um, the reality of things, the reality of how life is, and you have to experience Christmas in that way. That's really the main concept. So again, we did um, get a chance to read issue one, which was crowdfunded last year, and, and you currently have issue two up on Indiegogo. Uh, what can readers look forward to with this next part of the story? For sure. Um, well, more characters um, are coming. Um, so first off, we're going to get a lot more um, character interaction and uh, explanation with, you know, Garrett and Marie, they, um, at the end of the last issue, it kind of ended abruptly where they had a disagreement. Well, this disagreement kind of goes on because Garrett is a pacifist. He still doesn't understand the world. And so Marie is a leader of an, an army of uh, people who are rebelling against the evil nutcrackers to save planet Christmas. And she um, is trying her best to, you know, uh, kind of find Father Christmas, which is their their main purpose, who um, is actually the greatest warrior on all of Planet Christmas. The only issue is that he's lost his Christmas spirit. Um, and so that's kind of um, one of the things we'll develop in this issue, and the elves will explain to them what's going on with that. We'll meet Jack Frost, who is a more redemptive character. So um, he's had some dealings, some dark dealings with the Nutcrackers and an outside source um, from another planet who's kind of outsourced weapons to the Nutcrackers so they can take over the planet. So we're going to be developing these sorts of ideas. Jack Frost is definitely a redemptive character, um, maybe more in the lights of Scrooge, um, you know, and so he's kind of like a Scrooge and he's 
he's turned into this big ugly golem creature um and then we'll meet the the, the narrators the uh the ghost of good uh, of uh, past, present, and future, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, who are uh, slightly different than what we've seen in you know previous uh, incarnations. In fact, they're a lot different, but that's intentional. Um, and so, yeah, issue two is really where the characters will be at their lowest. It's a three-issue series. It's a three-issue um, you know story. And so, this is really the act two where the characters will be tested. There's a lot of fights in this one. There's a lot of battles, and um, yeah, the characters will most certainly be tested. Now, one thing that jumps out, you know, in, in reading issue one and, and looking at the uh, advanced art of, of issue two is is the art is just absolutely stunning. Uh, Raphael Sam uh, is working on, on issue two. Tell us a little bit about the working relationship between the two of you. For sure. Yeah. So Raphael, he lives in Brazil, right? And so he does not speak um, English. English is definitely not his first language. So we do have some issues. Um every once in a while, um, you know, kind of communicating every once in a while with ideas, but it's almost like he always makes it better, um, which is, um, there's never, like, I'll try to explain to him one certain thing I want a character to do, but he's so well-versed in his style, and he, he, I think, honestly, in tune with the story that he understands, you know, maybe this character should really be doing this instead of this, and um, it's just, he adds a dimension to the this, the um, the whole story that I I couldn't just as a writer add, you know, he's such a huge part of the, um, the, the story. It's it's such a huge part. And so our collaboration is really fun. And, um, he's always, uh, you know, adding little background things that, you know, I only notice now, like, you know, there's so many things I look back at issue one and notice, you know, he added some little Easter egg or some little thing. Um, and it's just a really fun collaboration. Now, on your uh, Indiegogo campaign, what are some of the reward tiers that you're offering for this project? What can you tell us about those? For sure. Um, Well, since it's number two, obviously, I want to give people the opportunity to, you know, catch up with the story if they hadn't already. So there's a, you know, you can get the featured perk if you go there now is issue one and two, physical and digital and a bookmark and a print of Jack Frost um, that you can only get on this campaign. And so um, that's that's the featured perk. I think that's uh, the most popular one. Um, we have a really cool perk this time around uh, where you can donate um, four books to the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, so a chapter of your choice, um, you know, whatever Boys and Girls Club you'd like to, because it is kind of a Christmas, we're going with the Christmas theme. So it would only make sense to kind of pay it forward or, you know, you know, give a child the gift of this book. So maybe they can get interested in it or something. And so that's something that I got the idea from, you know, some campaigns give books to the military and this sort of thing. And I kind of thought, well, what if we did it this way? Um, And then there's another really cool perk that's kind of a fan favorite at this point where you can create a Christmas character, um, which you can kind of, um, there's a lot of opportunity to create more characters in the background, given that this is a book about a war on a Christmas planet with uh, basically an unlimited amount of fantasy characters. So um, that is why there is basically um, this tier. People can kind of make whatever character they'd like to have in the back of the book. Um, There's a a limited amount of slots, but you can do that. And um, you can also get a sketch from Raphael uh, with one of the characters on it. So yeah, just a lot of fun perks, very simple perks, given that, you know, a a lot of people go crazy with variant covers or this or that. But um, 
I think that, you know, I think people really like how they can participate in the story with the creative Christmas character tier. I think that's a really unique thing. That's fantastic. Now we featured um, several creators with, uh, you know, work that's going on uh, crowdfunding sites and, and who will, or, or do self-publishing. And, and there seems to be a real massive shift towards those, uh, those venues uh, with self-publishing and crowdfunding. What's your take on that? Then so many creators, no matter what their level of, you know, uh, uh, you know, acclaim, whether it's, you know, someone who's worked in the industry or, or newcomers uh, to writing and art uh, are, are utilizing this. Yeah. Well, it is one of the, it's a, it's a great deal, you know, like, especially for me, it's, it's, Firstly, if you're starting out doing crowdfunding, it's not easy. You know, I mean, if you're, like you said, some established professionals from DC or Marvel have come over and done their own books and, and you know, they're probably going to succeed. Um, it's very likely they won't have a problem succeeding. But the issue does, like, uh, it's very difficult for someone to go um, into Indiegogo or a Kickstarter and try to do their own campaign without having an email list or a lot of established, um, you know, a lot of work. Um, established or, you know, if no one knows who you are, it's just really difficult to start. Um, so there's that. But I think that there's the reason why is that you can have a direct contact with your customer. There's no wall between you and you and the fans, which that can be a good thing and a bad thing. Um, but I think that that's one thing that people are really craving is that um, direct um the, the direct um, response from a fan. And I know you can get it on Twitter and stuff like that, but I think when you have no editorial, you have no um, no one telling you really how to tell the story, I think it, that's very attractive to people. You know, I think it's really, I think that's why the shift even from professionals into uh, in, independent comics and crowdfunding has been so popular this year, especially. I mean, we had Scott Snyder, um, Jimmy Palmiotti has been a big advocate. Uh, Sean Gordon Murphy, obviously, with his big campaign. Um, I'm trying to think of others. There's so many others. Carl Kiesel, of course, um, has been doing it for several years now. So, I mean, it's just, um, it's going to keep happening, you know, and I think it's great because it, it does give people more freedom to kind of, you know, make a book and then maybe have it published an image or I'm not really sure. But I, but I think uh, that's why there's the attraction. Do you feel like maybe some of the... Um the bigger names that have decided to do this crowdfunding thing are maybe stealing a little bit of the, the independent creator's thunder, or is it more of a, the more the merrier kind of situation? Oh, that's tough. Um, I think that it's kind of just, it was, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I want them to succeed and it's not, but I do think that it is difficult for maybe someone who's, you know, a smaller creator when you're kind of trying to go up against Tony S. Daniel, it's like, wow. Okay. Well, it's kind of tough, you know, it would be tough. But at the same time, I think that, um, you know, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, they have figured out ways to highlight projects that are smaller. Um, and I think that's the way the websites are built. Um, I really do. Because you know, obviously on Indiegogo, you can have a really huge creator put on something. But then somehow a book that just has a $5,000 goal that only made $1,000 in a day is over the book that made maybe $10,000 in a day only because of certain statistics and certain things about, um, you know, maybe the goal. And I think it is fair. I think there's a lot of um, the websites have, I think, really worked on that, um, trying to make it fair for everyone, um, you know, with taking their goal into account. So if my goal was 5,000 and let's say a, a professional publisher's goal was, um, you know, something, um, I think that 
they would kind of take into account, oh, this is a professional, this is a rookie, so we're going to try to highlight the rookie in some ways. And there's so many ways that these platforms do that. Um, you know, Kickstarter has the projects we love, or they have certain labels they can put on projects to kind of give them a push. And Indiegogo can put you on the top of a chart or something. So um, I'm not really worried about that exactly. I mean, it is it could be worrisome if more and more keep coming on, but I just don't see that happening quite yet. So much has been said about the proper timeline for winter holiday celebrations. <laughs> When's the appropriate time to commence festivities in your mind? I think any time is the appropriate. Because again, uh, Christmas, as we said, is is um, a very meaningful time. And the most and, and the the more you can really get in tune with how you are at Christmas time, the probably the better person you'll be. You know, so I think that if you try to get in the Christmas mindset all year round, and that doesn't mean listening to Christmas music all the time or putting up decorations, it just means like getting into that, like, wow, it's Christmas, I am going to be happy. And I know that it's not a happy time for a lot of people. I know it's very difficult. But you know, if you do feel the Christmas spirit, you should embrace that and try to do it all year round. Um, but as in terms of when you should listen to Christmas music and stuff, I think, um, honestly, yeah, November 1st is fine. Um, I mean, after Thanksgiving is probably, that's when you can, my theory is that you can listen to instrumental Christmas music on November 1st until Thanksgiving. And then on Thanksgiving, you can actually listen to it with words. Um, so that's kind of my theory is that that's more acceptable to people nowadays. I don't know. Now, besides uh, Break a Brack uh, issue two right now in Indiegogo, are there any other future projects that you can tease or talk about? Some that you can kind of throw out there for the audience to keep an eye out for? For sure. Yeah. Well, like I said, my anthology is going to definitely be on Indiegogo um, or Kickstarter, I think, actually. I'll do it on Kickstarter because um, that's where the other one succeeded. Um, so we'll be launching that on Kickstarter in you know, March or April. Um, we'll have about 15 to 20 stories with that one. And that's really the, the only other project I'm planning to go after in 2021 other than finishing Brick-A-Brack, you know, because obviously it's a three-issue story. I want to have it kind of done. Hopefully I'll actually have it done before we even launch the campaign so I can just print it and ship it. And the goal will be less if the production is, you know, I have to pay for less production. So that's really what I'm going to be working on next year is finishing this story, hopefully uh, getting issue three out um, in October, and then maybe um, having a campaign on Kickstarter for an exclusive like leather bound or a paperback collection of all the stories. You know, you never know. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the idea. Nothing crazy new next year, not a huge like IP or something, but, um, a lot of different, um, kind of continuing my comic book stories. So where can our, go uh, our listeners go to support you and your work? Yes. Yeah, so, um, right now Indiegogo, uh, with Brick or Brack number two is uh, huge and, um, we do end on December 10th. Uh, so, uh, if you're thinking about maybe, um, you will get, the PDF of the first issue and a PDF of what we have so far done of Brickerback number two, which is the entire backstory. We have a backup story you'll get to read and uh, five or 10 pages of interior stories. So that's like, you'll get all that before Christmas Eve. So you can read that to your kids. Um, but that's where you can find me now um, in terms of what I'm doing right now. But uh, you can look at me up at Instagram at Ryan Hawk at underscore 98. Um, I have a link tree up where I have my podcast. I have um, my the Unspeakable Text website, my webcomic website, um, and uh, my short films and all that kind of stuff. And um, on Twitter, I don't use as much, but um, 
at hawk underscore pro. So yeah, that's where really you can find me and find all my work. I always try to post at least once a day. All right. The book is Brick-A-Brack. You can find it on Indiegogo. Ryan Hawk, thank you so much for joining us today and best wishes. No problem. Thank you so much for having me and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thanks so much. All right. That wraps up our interview with author Ryan Hawk of Brick-A-Brack. Be sure to head to Indiegogo and check out that project and support him if you can. Um, when we return from this, our final break, we're going to come at you with two more nerd commendations. All right, we are here for our final segment, Nerd Commendations. Dave, you have a magnificent suggestion for us. What's going on? Yeah, you know, I've, I've spoken before about how quickly I've become a huge fan of the Miss Marvel character Kamala Khan. I've devoured the entire run by um, writer G. Willow Wilson, uh, then switched to the most recent series, uh, Magnificent Miss Marvel by Saladin Ahmed and Ming Young. And I'm going to admit. I had some concerns initially switching, uh, you know, creators, creative teams. G. Willow Wilson was involved in the creation of Kamala Khan. And so seeing another writer handle her worried me initially. My concerns were for naught. Saladin Ahmed knocked it out of the park, kept Miss Marvel's sprawling supporting cast involved, nailed Kamala Khan's voice, uh, and did a really nice job telling new stories with the character. And I really, it just really adore Minkyu Young's art here, which is energetic and fun and bright. It's it's just, it's been a blast of a book. Uh, I actually managed to get caught up on this series and decided to add it permanently to my pull list. I was so excited, Chris. There was a Marvel series that I'm actually up to date on. And and <laughs> and then I got the news that uh, as of January, Magnificent Miss Marvel is over as of issue number 18. The issue is technically the 75th issue of Kamala Khan's Solo Adventures, so it is going out with an extra-sized bang. But I have to say, it breaks my heart that the series is ending. Now, I do know Marvel has a history of like running a series for 12 to 18 months, canceling it, and then bringing it back in a new volume. They're, they're actually, I think, a little more intense with the constant canceling and new number ones than, than even DC is. So I have hopes that the series will be coming back at some point but you know again what creative team will be on there and and how they manage to capture this character that i've really i I just love this character she's brought me a lot of joy so far um so given the joy the series has brought me i just i want marvel to relaunch this character into a new series sooner rather than later so my nerd commendation is well basically just all 75 issues of Kamala Khan solo adventures, but if, if the most recent stuff is what you can get a hold of, Magnificent Ms. Marvel is, in fact, magnificent. It's an absolute blast of a series. Yeah, so I said this in our new segment with with playing Marvel's The Avengers uh, on, on the Xbox. I, I freaking love this character. Like, she is so wonderful she is a breath of fresh air um you know here's a mild spoiler but even in the trailer for for the video game she she is exposed to the terrigen you know on on a day when this terrigen explodes or whatever and then five years later she basically just like single-handedly brings the avengers back together and basically is like get your stuff together you're the avengers and it's so inspirational like to see this 
little girl who who grew up idolizing these people, but then can still flip that switch and be like, you know, hold them accountable. And I'm getting, you know, even some some kitty pride vibes, and and that's the highest compliment that I can give to a character. So I, I'm I'm really just fascinated to to just consume more of content with her. So I'm I'm looking at doing this entire you know 75 issue run after playing this game for just a couple of days you know and even picking up champions with uh that features her and another character that's near and dear to my heart and miles morales so um i am just so so excited about this character and i i really hope that they do and i think it would be incredibly stupid if they didn't being as they have the ms marvel series coming on disney plus why in the world would you not have a comic you know running current so that's coming in the next year or two so i i you know, and, and you're absolutely right. Marvel loves doing that new number one business. I mean, laughs in Amazing Spider-Man. How many volumes of Amazing Spider-Man do we have? Um, so, so I'm just super excited to read all this stuff, and and I think my holiday break is uh, is going to be very, very comic heavy. Yeah. So I have also started reading, you know, all these other series that she's popped up in to kind of follow the character around, and I would highly recommend that before you jump into Champions that you read, uh, I think it's 11 or 12 issues of all new, all different Avengers first. Uh, she actually features, featured as an Avenger with, um, you know, uh, Lady Thor, for lack of better term, um, and Miles Morales uh, for a very short run. And that leads directly into uh, Champions. And it's actually written by the same writer, Mark Wade. So if you do that run of Avengers first, I think that sets up kind of, the dynamic of that she has with some of the older heroes and why she ends up leaving the Avengers and kind of starting or, or, or helping start uh, this champions team. Uh, so I would highly recommend that if you want more Miss Marvel, besides that 75 issues um, that you start with all new, all different Avengers before you go to champions that I'm in the middle of reading champions right now. And I'm having, a, I'm having a pretty good time with it. So. No, I think I've read a couple of those. Is is the Sam Wilson Captain America and Peter Parker a part of that team? Peter Parker is not. It is. Uh, it's Iron Man, Sam Wilson Captain America, uh, Lady Thor, Miles Morales, uh, Miss Marvel, and the Teenage Nova. Okay. Oh, oh, the Sam Alexander. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there, there was one iteration where I saw that Peter Parker, it was um, the Parker Industries, Peter Parker, where he had that like neon outline. I, I read a couple of issues of that where they were fighting Kang, but maybe this is a different one. But again, there's, you know, no, more volumes that Marvel wants to throw at you. Absolutely. Yeah. But this one, uh, very short, I think it was only like 12 issues or something, but it was written by Mark Wade and that led directly into Champions. All right, Chris, what is your nerd commendation this week? So, Dave, you you kind of, you know, spawned this idea for me when you uh, recommended 52. Um, when you when you said it's not necessarily like a secret one, but for if you're getting ready to start reading DC content, check this one out. So I'm doing the same thing. If, if you're interested in, you know, starting to read X-Men books or, or stories about mutants, um, the the big mutant fans like myself know all about Age of Apocalypse. But if, if you're just starting out, Age of Apocalypse, man, I can't recommend it high enough, highly enough. Um, it's a 1995 comic book crossover storyline. It's mostly published in the X-Men franchise of books by Marvel. Um, so basically the synopsis is, is Legion. If you've seen the X, FX show, um, you know, David Haller, Legion is the son of Charles Xavier. 
Um, he suffers some serious mental health issues. He has, you know, like 23 or more personalities. Um, and he looks at Magneto and sees all of the, the crimes that he's committed. And he thinks that mutant kind and humanity will be better off if he goes back in time and kills Magneto. Unfortunately, Charles Xavier, his father, steps in front of the blast and is killed himself. So this is an alternate timeline where Charles Xavier was killed um, and Apocalypse takes over. So the Age of Apocalypse is born and it's just this amazing alternate reality. You know, that's something that we both, uh, you know, claim as, as something that we adore. And this is probably the best alternate universe uh, storyline that I've ever read. Um, it just takes like the the essence of the characters and doesn't lose the character, you know, essence and just spins it in a different way. It's very, very interesting. Um, and then they have, you know, several different um, titles spinning off of this that are just so much fun to read. Um, it starts with X-Men Alpha. It uh, starts the whole thing. You can read up the, the Legion quest in, in the Uncanny X-Men books if you'd like. And the X-Men, you know, uh, the adjectiveless X-Men. But it, it doesn't really... The thing that I like about this, too, is it doesn't require a whole lot of continuity. Because it's an alternate reality, you don't have to be overwhelmed by, like, what happened for this. And, you know, the, as troublesome as X-Men continuity is, you can pretty much just read this event by itself. Um, starts with X-Men Alpha. And then it, it breaks off into some different, you know, storylines. You've got Gambit and the Externals. Gambit's got its own team. So they really, really went into the 90s and the popular characters uh, from the X-Men in the 90s. And they got their own books. Gambit has his own team, uh, Gambit and the Externals. Generation Next, which is some of the most glorious Chris Bashalo art that you'll ever see on an X-Book. Chris Bashalo on an X-Book is, is just a symphony of art. And it's glorious in its weirdness um you have astonishing x-men who are led by rogue uh you know Sabretooth is on the team blink wild child morph sunfire um who who probably sunfire has my favorite um costume uh in age of apocalypse such a cool redesign of that character costume amazing x-men is quicksilver storm dazzler banshee iceman and exodus um, then you have Weapon X, which is Logan, but he only has one hand and his lover, Jean Grey. So th that kind of takes its spins on, on its head that Jean uh, is with Logan now. Um, yeah, Factor X, X-Man, Nate Grey, who's a, such a fantastic character. And then my personal favorite, I could recommend this just on its own, Excalibur, but it's spelled X-C-A-L-I-B-R-E. It's a team built around Nightcrawler and his mom mystique and it's so cool like it's basically like a swashbuckling pirate adventure with my personal favorite mutant nightcrawler and his mom mystique and they're on the same side for once and it's really really cool um but again this is just really really fun and it's of of all the 90s era comics that i've read this is without a doubt my favorite it's it just leans, it knows what it is. It leads into it. Um, as far as the creative team, you've got several different writers, including Scott Lobdahl, Mark Wade, Fabian Nicieza, John Francis Moore, Larry Hama, Warren Ellis, Jeff Loeb. Yes, Jeff Loeb appearance again. But but before he disgusted us with Ultimatium, uh, Howard Mackey and Terry Cavanaugh. Uh, as far as art team, you've got Roger Cruz, Steve Epting, Joe Mad. I love Joe Mad's art. So great. Andy Kubert is, is so amazing. Tony Daniel, Salvador LaRocca, who I love. Chris Bashalo, I can't say much. How about I love his art. 
um, Adam Kubert and, and so many others. Terry Dodson's in there. Carlos Pacheco's great. Um, for the art alone, not to mention the the really fun storylines, Age of Apocalypse is the way to go. You've got a fantastic reading list that Marvel Unlimited um, has displayed on their app. You just go in there and you just look up Age of Apocalypse and it tells you issue by issue by issue by issue to read. Super easy. Um, you just pin that to your homepage on Marvel Unlimited. Um, and then also Comic Book Herald has a great reading order if you want to do some background stuff, if you really got the extra time. But Age of Apocalypse is probably the most fun that I've ever had reading a comic book. Yeah, you know, so I've obviously never read this event, uh, although I'm familiar with the basic trappings. I've heard about several times, you know, Legion accidentally killing Charles Xavier, you know, this whole apocalypse thing happening 10 years sooner, alternate timeline, got all that. And as I've mentioned earlier in the episode, I'm a sucker for alternate reality stories. Um, although I usually need a really strong foundation in the regular reality of the characters before I feel like I can really enjoy the alternate takes. I'm still working on that for X-Men, I think. So would you say the story is truly new reader friendly? And if not, uh, what would be some required reading that you would say fans should get into before they try to read Age of Apocalypse? Um, I, I thought, I thought, I I would think it's pretty, if, if it's pretty easy to, to pick up new, um, if you get the basic grasp of those characters, even like looking up like a quick bio on Wikipedia or, um, you know, like the Marvel wiki pages, you know, it's pretty easy. Um, if you saw enough of the X-Men animated series from the nineties, that kind of, you know, kind of leads right into it, you know, from, from like the, the, the teams that you get into. Also, the one thing I forgot, and I don't know how I forgot this, um, the X-Men are led by Magneto in this alternate reality. And as my absolute favorite character uh, in comics, you know, that no, say no more. I've got Magneto leading the X-Men. So like it's, but, but, um, you know, I always want to recommend the Claremont uh, run when it comes to X-Men. So if, if you were probably going in order and you wanted to have some background knowledge, I, I would guess, you know, read Claremont. I'm never going to say, you know, anything other than read Claremont's X-Men, but, um, even, even the launch of the new volume, um, the, the 91, 92, um, you know, adjectiveless X-Men title that, that might even be some good prior knowledge. Just kind of get a grasp of the basic characters that you're going to be introduced to. All right. Well, that, uh, that sounds like a good starting point then for me, if I'm going to read this. All right. That wraps up another episode of the nerd by word podcast. We thank you for joining in. We thank uh, writer Ryan Hawk for joining us for today's interview. And as always, uh, you can find us on social media, on Instagram and Twitter at nerd by word, Facebook at the nerd by word and individually on Instagram and Twitter at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. And be sure to uh, give us a five-star rating and review on the podcasting platform of your choice. We're available on pretty much any platform you can imagine. Uh, we're on you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio. Uh, we are on uh, Audible now as well. So if you're looking uh, anywhere for the Nerd By Word, please make sure to give us a rating and review. We totally would appreciate it. And if all that's overwhelming, just go to nerdbyword.com and you can listen to it there as well. As always, thanks so much. Uh, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. 
Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>